Welcome to The Law in Black and White, a podcast featuring Jonathan Greenblatt and myself, Brian Parker, the co-founders of Legal Innovators, an alternative legal service provider. We have been friends for over 25 years. We're both lawyers with lots of opinions. In this podcast, we look at current events, the business of law, innovation, and diversity in the legal industry. And occasionally, we'll even talk about sports. As the name of our show suggests, we recognize that there may be aspects of the law that require our thinking to go beyond just the black and white of the law. We share what we know, what we've learned, and what we're still learning. In today's episode, we're going to explore the law as it applies to the recent shootings of unarmed black Americans in the United States. This is an emotional and difficult topic, but an important one to discuss, and we feel that it's important that we have a candid conversation about it and try to be as objective as possible. We're very pleased to have with us today Matthew Brief, a former prosecutor, both federal and Manhattan District Attorney's Office, who will provide an objective view of the law and how it's applied. I'll walk you through kind of the four steps that I think apply to a lot of the issues that are being, that have arisen in the, in, in the past several months. And, you know, and the first is, you know, when can you use deadly force? And the Supreme Court, in a case called Tennessee Garner, which dates back to the 1980s, you know, said, and, and on the surface, it certainly appears to make sense, that uh, deadly force can be used by a police officer when he has probable cause to believe that a suspect may may pose a significant threat to the death, to cause the death of a serious physical injury to others. I should point out in, in the Garner case, because that seems pretty cut and dry, uh, in the Garner case though, what the police officers did was shoot a fleeing burglary suspect who they actually kind of felt wasn't armed. And so it, it'll tell you how these doctrines can be stretched and used. Now he had just committed a burglary and, and, and who's to say that burglary doesn't pose a threat. If you're in a house which is getting burglarized, I suspect the victim thinks he's in significant risk of, of, of threat. That case has been refined a little bit by a case called Graham v. Connor, in which the facts are in some respects even more extreme, although fortunately there wasn't a fatality, but which is one where the police you know, arguably, certainly roughhoused and became aggressive with with a fellow who actually was just going into diabetic shock and, and had a friend there to tell the police, just give him some orange juice. He's going into diabetic shock. He's not being uh, obstreperous. He's not being violent. And, and, and there, there was an old test, which I, I won't get into, but, but the Supreme Court said that, you know, we have to look at what, what is objectively reasonable. And when we do that, and, and this makes sense, when we do that, we really have to look at it through the eyes of the cops on the street in the heat of the moment, because we as lawyers, and, and this is something that I always fault lawyers for, you know, years later, we debate whether a police officer's actions are reasonable, and smart people on all sides of the political spectrum or who analyze these facts disagree, well, the cop, you know, has 10 seconds to make the decision that smart guys who graduated law school with honors, you know, sit in debate. And, and, and so that kind of became the, the, the case of what's objectively reasonable for a cop to use deadly physical force. So that was an interesting conversation, John. Uh, Heavy to say the least. Um, I guess I say first as a, as a black man, um, this is uh, this is troubling what we're going through. But as a lawyer, uh, I think that the conversation that we're pausing to have here today uh, is an important one, and I hope that our listeners will see both sides of that and come away um, maybe with a little bit different perspective than they had. Um, I'd, I'd love it if you could start just a, a super quick summary uh, to, to ground people in what they heard uh, in terms of the controlling precedent in this area. Yeah, as you heard, I was uh, pressing a little bit uh, to see if Matt thought that 
Garner really had any current force after Connor. And he thought it did to some extent, but then he tied it back to the Connor principle. So I really think where we are is with Connor. And basically the test is it's an objective one. It says, what would a, a reasonable police officer do under the circumstances measured at the time and given all the inputs that the police officer has then? Um, so I don't know. I guess you and I should discuss what we think of that standard and whether it's the yeah. best standard. Uh, I can start with my view and then you can jump in. Yeah, that'd be great. I have to say, as a lawyer, looking at it completely uh, from a sanitized perspective, it seems facially fair. It's the normal objective test that one applies. It takes the uh, personal subjective view out of it and it tries to take into account all the factors. Having said that, my fear is that when we're talking about the use of deadly force it uh, and, and giving all credence to the difficult circumstances that a police officer finds him or herself in, in the moment, which has to be taken into account, I'm concerned that it may tilt more towards the benefit of doubt being given to the use of deadly force. And I personally prefer a test that looks at whether the person who's been shot by the police officer was uh, imminently using um, deadly force him or herself. In other words, whether it was necessary to do that to prevent someone from being harmed. Uh, In that case, I understand the use of deadly force. In the other case, I think what it allows is someone to use it when perhaps they need not have used it. And so... Uh, It may be that you uh, are able to uh, come to the conclusion that the police officer didn't do anything wrong, but I think the question is, should the police officer have done that under those circumstances, not can they do it under those circumstances? And I think that changes the equation a bit. Yeah, John, listening to you again, I'll I'll uh, I'll try to keep both of my uh, both of my hats, or at least two of my hats, on. Uh, and as a lawyer, I think the balanced way that you went through it is is right, right? Um, you know, it is a balance, and and we have a lot of very brave uh, men and women, as you've alluded to, that are out doing some very dangerous jobs. Uh, so uh, we we as a public policy matter, I think we want to make sure that we have people uh, out there that can protect us. And that too, they're they're not worried about being sued or fired or whatever over every little thing. And I guess it's hard to take into account that we're uh, regulating and we're trying to uh, bend the law to uh, curb the behavior of a few bad actors. Um, and and that's and that's tough. I think uh, from a rule of law perspective, which we got into a little bit with uh, with, with Matt. We go through this uh, balance test that you're talking about, and I think where we are right now is that there's a lot of patience required. And then as the law has gotten applied to these fact patterns, and we have seen few uh, of the officers held uh, guilty, a uh, notable exception was the uh, shooting of Walter Scott in South Carolina. And so I think it's difficult, but what, where, where my mind is, is how do we balance being patient enough to let all the facts play out? How do we uh, give people confidence that this is going to be decided fairly uh, so that we can buy into this rule of law? Uh, I guess finally, as I was trying to reflect on this, I'm wondering, um, Obviously, we've, we've got a, you know, this, our Supreme Court is the highest court in the land, and, and we look to them for a great many things, including precedent. But I wonder um, if the true answer, and I know we'll get into this a little bit later, may come outside of the courts, meaning uh, what are some of the state statutes uh, doing? Uh, Colorado, California come to mind. Uh, what are some of the enhanced training things, uh, training protocols that we want to talk about and the role of mental health? Um, so while we're on the court um, and uh, we we uh, lost a, a giant in jurisprudence here uh, this earlier this week in losing Justice Ginsburg. Uh, and I think that in one um one way things could play out is that President Trump gets to report, uh, appoint her replacement right now. And we move from a five to four uh, slightly uh, conservative majority to a six to three 
conservative majority. And I wonder to the extent you've given any thought, John, uh, what would a 6-3 court mean for uh, these precedents that we've been talking about? Well, two things. One, I think we should all have learned by now that it's very difficult to predict um, just from a judge's um, philosophy on life or general conservative versus liberal bent, uh, how they will sometimes deal with these very difficult issues. We've been surprised before. Presidents have been surprised by their appointees. So I don't think it's fair to, 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 to without even knowing who the uh, nominee is, to say how something like that might change. But, but That's a fair point. to the extent, and, and remember that, that test was adopted by a very different court. Um, that test goes back several years, the, the, the mm-hmm. Connor test. And, um, and Justice Rehnquist, Chief Justice Rehnquist wrote that decision. Um, so, and it was, and if you look at what they were doing with the lower court, they were actually attempting to make it more objective than it had been. And uh, I don't want to say easier to establish that there was a potential violation of the law, but at least giving people a fair shot at it. Yeah, so, I think that's right. So, yeah. um, so it's it's very um, it's very uh, difficult to predict. But you know, one can at least say it's not likely that the law will move in a direction that some of these, at least at the Supreme Court level, that it will move in the direction that some of these state statutes are moving. Um, whether it will conclude. Those statutes are inconsistent with the Constitution is another thing. Um, But, you know, there are we talked about it with Matt. There are these uh, police manuals. There are city and local ordinances that have attempted to apply a layer beyond um, the objective standard, which is basically was there a threat um, of imminent use of deadly force by the person who was who was shot. Um, and as I said before, I happen to like that add on, um, uh, while also recognizing under the circumstances, the police officer has a very short period of time to make a difficult decision, but that goes into the mix. In other words, that is part of the test is, um, was it reasonable for a police officer to conclude in the circumstances in which he or she finds him or herself, uh, that there was an imminent use of 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 a deadly weapon by the person they shot. Um, that will go into the mix. You'll take all. You should be required as a juror to take all those things into account. Um, in terms of the, I mean, this is a this is a tough issue. Do we wait for the facts? Do we start to judge things before all the facts emerge? You mean, you mean on the rule of law point, John? Yeah, on the rule of law. Well, the point you made before about being patient, right? Yes. I think yes. there's a difference. And I've given some thought to this in a lot of these contexts um, in terms of uh, people who say uh, we need to have change immediately. I think there's a difference between judging the specifics of a particular incident where there are human beings on all sides of it involved and we have to have a system that waits for the facts to determine guilt or innocence. Um, you know, we do not want to be in a situation in this country where anyone is judged uh, by the court of public opinion finally before all the facts come out and the rules of law are applied to them. Well, I, I mean, this all plays into that objectively reasonable standard. And, and we don't know what happened when the cops arrived. Was Jacob Blake trying to defuse some sort of dispute? Uh, in which case, that's certainly something a prosecutor's going to use. Or was he at a place in which he was the subject of a restraining order and was there in violation of that restraining order? So it, it all plays into, until we know all the facts, really, how can we apply the law? And, and the answer is, we, we can't. I mean, these are going to be difficult investigations. Um, so that that's my response as we take it each step of the way. So I don't know if the police urged everybody to calm down or, or said, what is happening here? Or if 
if in fact Mr. Blake was violating a restraining order, was was mm-hmm. a woman who perhaps was the one who called the police saying, you know, there's already a warrant out for We just don't know. And until we know that, I don't know how we judge whether these officers' actions were reasonable under anybody's standard, under the Graham standard, uh, or, or under any. Having said that, that doesn't mean one has to wait to express their frustration right. with the uh, and anger, more than frustration, at the repetitive nature of the problem. And right. so there's a difference between saying sit back and wait and sit back and judge. I, right. We have to sit back and judge. You know, I can't imagine a responsible lawyer saying before we have all the facts, we should decide on someone's guilt or innocence. But I can imagine people saying, look, the guilt or innocence will be decided when all the facts are known. But this particular pattern is troubling and and upsetting and is something that needs to be focused on. Um, And when it comes time to judge this person's guilt or innocence, uh, the, the law must take into account all these sensitivities that we've been talking about. Yeah. I think fair, right? I mean, we, we can just go back to this current court and a uh, case on abortion, um, case on, on the Affordable Ca- uh, Health Care Act. And we saw Justice Roberts uh, step up in, in ways that you might not have thought, uh, given the, the people that um, uh, the person, excuse me, uh, that, that nominated him. So I think your caution to us is a good one. Uh, and we have to let this play out and, and uh, these are the justices uh, of the, the highest court of the land. And and I think we've got to have a little confidence that they, or a lot of confidence, as the case may be, uh, that they take this, you know, they take this job very seriously. And they're not there, uh, by and large, to play politics, I guess. So I, I agree with most of what you said. I, I, I'd move to the factual understanding of, of what's going on in these cases. And there's... Um, there's a tension, right? That we want people to have a rule, uh, respect for a rule of law. Um, we want all the facts to come out, um, and, but there's this pressure keg building up as we see this litany of, of cases. And in the in the litany of cases, at least you know Michael Brown to so to the present, we don't have uh, a single one of the people that was shot. Um, carrying a weapon, uh, and uh, people may argue, and, and and it's and it's a valid argument uh, that Jacob Blake had a knife uh, in the in the car, um, and and that he was going for it. Uh, it wasn't in his hand, but again, that's that's to the reasonable standard that you were talking about. I guess I look at the uh, twelve million dollars settlement that was recently paid to uh, the family of Breonna Taylor, uh, and and there is a within the construct of what we're saying, it seems to be in this pattern, if the law is not taking one side or the other, some level of basic disrespect for uh, black life. And so how do you legislate um, that we have that respect? And I think those go to my comments that maybe the answer is gonna come outside of, uh, of, of, of just the case law, right? So that we, all, all life is valuable, uh, all police lives are valuable, we, but but we we're not at that point right now. So how do we tell Black America in particular, but lots of people who find issues with with what's going on, be patient, wait, the facts will come out, the justice will come out. Uh, when you know one of the one of the tools that we have, and we talked about this with Matt to help us, these body cams, um, they and, and I understand technical lapses. But sometimes these body cams are turned off and on in such a way that we that we have to question, <laughs> is, this, yeah, yeah. is this a fair process? You're, you're asking people to be patient, you know, with, with facts. Um, and I think we're, you know, we're going to come back and talk about some statistics from, from these other uh, cases, uh, what seems like a string of cases, and, and ask, is, is it reasonable when there's been, you know, so much pain and it seems like whether it's profiling or it's weighted one, uh, heavily towards one community, um, 
how, how do we sit back? But let's go to the evidence and talk about uh, body cam uh, videos and, and, and what I've seen here, uh, and I'd love it if, if you have something that disagrees, is there are holes in the, in the body cam footage. Um, so what happened in Kenosha in 2004 was one of the things that spurred on the use of body cams. Now we have it spotty. We have other other cases where police are either um, not turning it on at all or it's intermittent. I'm wondering how that fact should be uh, analyzed as we seek to apply the law. Well, it's a crucially important fact. I mean, if you take the Blake case uh, and, and then we can I'll briefly just talk about a couple of other mm -hmm. cases. But if the police officers are turning off body cameras at critical moments, one, I mean, you guys know your lawyers, judges are going to essentially say that that's equivalent to a spoilation of evidence. And they may even instruct the jury to draw a negative inference out of that. Um, if it is just technological flaws, because the other thing that, that people have to understand, whether it's, it's, it's accumulating and testing DNA to tasers, to body cameras, is all these technologies are not perfect yet. And, and so, you know, you literally can have flaws in software, equipment, and, and I don't know. I mean, I'd be, you know, pretty horrified as a juror if I find that, oh, we're at the, the moment of a confrontation, all of a sudden the body camera is turned off and the next thing, you know, a, a young black man or, or anyone is dead. I mean, you know, and, and, and we're left with, with just that. Mm -hmm. So I think it's a critical fact to find out what happened. Well, I think Matt said it well. When Let's just go to the body cams and then come to your bigger question. Sure. When the body cam goes out at a particularly opportune time That's right. for the police officer and a particularly mm -hmm. critical time for those who are trying to determine the reasonableness of the conduct – uh, that raises all sorts of questions right. um, in the mind of the trier effect. If you just right. put yourself, I'll speak for myself as a white sure. person. If I'm in the jury mm -hmm. and the body cam goes out at the wrong time, right. I'm going to be, need to be seriously convinced that there was a technical problem. Right. You know, so we call that, that one of the, the bad facts right there. That would, that be would a bad become fact. a very bad fact. Just yeah. like when a document is destroyed in – uh, you know, that has potentially has particularly important information on it or when tapes are erased or any other kind of evidence that would normally exist doesn't exist at a critical point in the evidential chain. Uh, it raises serious questions. So I don't think it goes – I think it goes very much into the mix on the specific case. But taking yourself out of the specific sure. case, I just want to repeat, I'm not saying – People need to be patient and allow these problems to evolve. Um, I, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying the particular facts of a case are important to the guilt or innocence of the individual who's being charged or might be charged, that you have to wait for those facts to emerge because there may be a fact that's critical that's right. to the outcome. But what I am saying is I don't think we have to be patient about the the overriding concern about the pattern, about uh, the perception amongst black Americans that their lives don't matter, that people treat them far more inhumanely, um, they're quicker on the trigger. Those things are a matter of constant pressure because as white people, we need to look into our hearts and evaluate whether we're doing that, whether are we doing it consciously, are we doing yeah. it subconsciously. If we are doing it, we can't do it. We have to stop doing it. So I wouldn't let the foot off the gas on making that point so that all of us who are people of good faith um, are constantly asking ourselves the question whether we're, we are doing that and whether we have to correct for it. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think incredibly uh, well said and not to uh, sort of break our arms, patting our own selves on the back or be shamelessly uh, promotional. Um, but I would uh, suggest to our audience on that score, the piece that you wrote, um, uh, the piece that you wrote um, recently um, uh, about on, on this uh, on this topic, I think I, it's on our website uh, and I would commend to people. 
uh, to read this because as we learned in law school, it's hard to legislate uh, morality or uh, maybe a little bit uh, impossible. And, and rather than our politicians playing politics, maybe we can speak to a basic respect. Um, and and in, in that way, with some of the other things that we're going to talk about, maybe we would all come uh, to a point where, um, and I think we, we have to get to this point, if we are going to have people buy into the rule of law as something that's fair, is that all people are, are valued fairly. So, um, Hey, Brian, one thing I was just going to, uh, if I could interrupt for a second on that. Yeah, please. To me, it's a little bit like, I, I think it's disrespectful to assume that the perception black Americans have is made up. They have the perception they have for a reason. This isn't something they want to have. They don't want to be feeling like their lives don't matter, right? They're, it's, right. A, it's a boiling over of frustration. And it's a little bit like uh, I've come to conclude in my own personal conduct that if someone is offended by something I said, I, it's not my job to try to say they shouldn't be offended. They're offended. If they are offended then I need to try to change my, um, my, my approach because it's not for me to judge whether they are offended. I used to think that, oh, well, that was just meant as a joke. That's funny. You know, I'm not talking about on, on race issues. I'm talking about any kind of joke that somebody might find offensive. And I changed and said, you know, if someone is telling me that that offended them, that's enough because I have to take the good faith sense that, sorry, I have to take on good faith that they are truly offended. And if they're genuinely offended, it's not my objective to offend them. So I have to apologize and try to change my conduct. Um, same thing here. People are saying, people of good faith are saying that they believe we've reached a point in society where it, their lives taken as a whole, don't matter to the same extent that uh, white lives matter. And I think it's incumbent on us to hear that. Um, we talk a lot in, in the piece that I, well, we co-authored uh, about what should the legal industry learn from the murder of George Floyd. I think you're picking up on some of those themes that we said there. And I think it's important when we, when we analyze case law and the facts, um, and, and this is, I'm convinced that between you, Matt, uh, and, and me, uh, we've, we've got the parameters of how to look at this, but they're so, they're so much broader. Um, and, and I just wanted to underscore that point. I know it's something that we try to practice, but that's having authentic conversations that, that can sometimes be tough. Uh, and giving people the latitude to, to, to make mistakes, but to learn and, and, and to teach. And if, uh, if people want, obviously, lots of, uh, lots of good books on the topic, you talk about people of, uh, of good faith and, and, and good morals. I wonder, um, Matt hinted at this, and I think, it's, I think it's right. We sometimes think about this as maybe a conservative talking point, but I think that there's some merit to it. And that is, what is the role of politics in the media uh, in kind of fanning the flames here? Just, you know, from, from my perspective, there is genuine hurt and anger, as you said, and that's valid. Um, but there's a sensationalism, I think. Uh, and when you add the politics into it on people on both sides of the aisle and that we have an election year uh, and all the way up and down the ticket, right, uh, going to the very top. How, how should we think about that and, and should we be uh, asking our politicians to hold themselves to better account? And the news media, which we always call the fourth estate, do they have more of a moral responsibility here uh, in reporting the news versus just making such a sensationalized product? I believe the answer to that is yes, they do. Um, yeah, you know, uh, I, we live in the real world. I don't know how yeah, we're going to pull right. back from where we are. But I think one of the reasons we're so polarized in the country right now, and it really worries me, because we're going to solve this problem through dialogue, through understanding, 
and through getting to know people as human beings. That's it, it, people empathize with people they know. It's just, a, in my view, a fact of life and human That's nature. Right. Um, the more we know one another and the more we hear one another, the harder it is to, to, to take a view that you know is so difficult for the person you know um, or, or understand. So uh, the more we're driven apart, by contrast, the less we have any empathy for one another. So when politicians and the media drive us apart uh, and play on that, those separations, it sets us back. Um, and, uh, you know, to say that people of my generation are weary is to put it mildly because we feel this deja vu, uh, a sense that whatever progress we're making might be slipping away. I'm not quite that negative, by the way, or, or pessimistic, but but it's wearying. And it's hard enough to have these conversations that have to be had with people so one can hear different perspectives. And then when you layer on all the fanning of the flames that goes on, it becomes very easy to just retreat to our corners and say it's too hard to deal with. And uh, if we don't deal with them, we will regress. Yeah. And, and I, you know, I guess uh, for, for this one, and then I want to return us to uh, a little bit more of the facts and the statutory law around this, uh, around this topic. And I'll go back to a familiar, at least where I'm coming from, a familiar refrain in that elections have consequences, right? And the very one that we're considering right now um, Maybe some that are uh, upset um, uh, should have, uh, uh, if one party or the other wins, it's just the constitutional right of the president to nominate a Supreme Court justice. And so I think we have to get out there um, and not just be fired up and, and vote at the top of the ticket every four years. Um, there are local, um, there are local elections that matter and they matter a lot. So your state uh, AG, your local district attorney, uh, your mayors, and we're going to get into some of this uh, a little bit. Um, maybe some of the answers are on uh, the police reform side. And uh, if if we have uh, a DA uh, whose job, uh, and I'll, I want to uh, want to bring us back to this, a DA whose job it is to work uh, often with police because they're, they're witnesses, right? Um, if if not um, deciding, uh, do they bring charges or not? And so all kinds of things like prosecute uh, uh, prosecutorial uh, discretion, uh, whether we have uh, a grand jury, whether there should be a special prosecutor. And I think we, I think I posed that to uh, to to uh, Matt, uh, and that's not uh, free from controversy, right? Because uh, those people can be angling for something uh, higher too. But I do think that we've got to do maybe a better job of holding people to account of all the reasons that they're there. Including this question of moral leadership, I think, as uh, John, you've you've well raised. Well, what I, you know, the thing that appeals to me that's been kicked around out here, special prosecutors, of course, if you get to the prosecution stage, um, often make a lot of sense. I'm not sure they're a panacea, but they make sense. Um, but I think whenever there's a shooting by a police officer of a person or of a police officer. Um, that there has to be civilian input along with police input and prosecutorial input to evaluate the situation. You need to get the different perspectives. You need community participants, hopefully very objective, balanced people who uh, who will look at it from all sides. Um, but, you know, we have and this isn't to pick on police officers. You have the blue wall on one side and then no, you have right. people who can never see the police as doing the right thing, which is obviously an overreaction on the other side. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, you have people with political agendas. If you could allow, if you could, I think these systems, these places that have invited in reviews that include respected members, balanced, respected members of the community – um, to be participate in the process, that's how you gain some legitimacy and, and a buy-in for, for the, for the um, evaluation of the facts that's going on. Otherwise, there's so much suspicion that is being tilted one way or the other that people just don't, don't accept the outcome. Yeah. 
And, and uh, I want to move us to uh, uh, bring up some statistics that we touched on, but I do want to make a point and because uh, you touched on it. I think it's incredibly valuable. Um, I think folks that listen to this podcast should take away that it is a respect for all of human life, right? We seem to be talking about a recent spate of black shootings by the police, um, but I want to make it clear, um, and I think I speak for both of us, uh, that the cowardly act of uh, when those two cops were ambushed uh, in, I think it was Carson, but I know it was Southern California, um, just sitting there on duty is that the, the, there's, there's no way that that could be excused. Uh, under uh, under anything. Washington Post, moving to statistics, uh, we look at the, the stats from 2015 to 2019, just underscoring what we're what we're talking about, seem to suggest that it's three times more likely for a uh, black person to be shot uh, by a cop than it is a white person, um, and Matt clarified uh, when I when I raised this for him or raised this to him, excuse me, uh, that 2019 uh, the stats uh, normalized a little bit, meaning that it was a lot more. Uh, there were still um, more um, blacks that were shot uh, by population, but it evened up some. I wonder, um, are are is the use of facts? I'm sorry, stats helpful in rev in helping us revise uh, training? Uh, statutes? Uh, should should it be put into how we look at case law? Or are the stats too squishy and manipulable uh, to, to, to really give us, you know, something to, to put our sound foot on? Well, you know, in my view, the, the stats, uh, you have to be, take stats with a grain of salt. It, mm -hmm. So the question is, is there a well-accepted objective uh, measurement that that all sides of the issue can get comfortable with because stats can be incredibly powerful if people have confidence in them <laughs> and we all know uh, you know that statistics can be also made to, to support any side of any case um, so so you know Matt was talking about the Washington Post databases in yeah. his view the most comprehensive and reliable database and actually, some of the ways you can measure those stats wouldn't necessarily support the notion that there's the pattern that we're talking about. Um, and other statistics would show there is. Um, and that I, I don't I don't particularly think that our uh, reasoning over all of this should get too tied into the stats. We also have our own eyes and ears that tell us what's happening in society. Um, and when you measure the stats, let's say, is someone unarmed? Um, well, how's that being measured? What's unarmed mean? Are we using consistent statistics across the database? Um, what if the person isn't armed at the moment, but was clearly reaching for that? Let's not take the Jacob Blake knife situation, but was mm -hmm. reaching for I'll make it as extreme as possible. A grenade, you know. No, that's right. So that's he, right. he was unarmed so when he was shot, but there. he wasn't. Yeah. Ar he was about to be armed. Yeah. You know, that's where you can. And I'm not using this as an excuse to undermine the main point that we're all discussing. But if there are amongst both the you know people on all sides of the issue, uh, a respected repository of the statistics who measures them fairly. They can obviously be very important because uh, they are meant to be, if used properly, they're meant to be objective. So, yeah. uh, you know, I don't know what to say beyond that. You, as you and as you know, you're yeah. more of a data person than I am. Um, I, I, as a as a litigator, I mistrust data instinctively because both sides of a case use the data to say what they want. <laughs> Yeah, that, that, that's right. And, and it's, it's a little bit hard. And I think we have to figure out where and how we're using the data as, as, as you're saying. Um, my own opinion is you're, you're right. I am, um, a, a data person, but I think it's if, uh, the courts are going to look at precedent. I think if, if one side is being singled out, uh, you know, justice should, should try to balance that out. But I think to the extent that we return to this notion that, um, some of our solution in this area could be um, beyond uh, just the Supreme Court precedents and public policy and state statutes. I think data can be good. Um, and 
uh, are, are police using uh, deadly force in circumstances where we don't want them to use it? So we can use that to uh, indicate training that would drive a better behavior. Uh, same thing in, in, say, cases of mental illness. And I, and I want to um, maybe end on three things, which is the, the, the Rochester situation with, with the mental illness, uh, no-knock warrants uh, with, with Brianna, and then uh, California and Colorado. So maybe we'll just do, you know, take these as a, as, as a speed round. I think what data uh, would suggest is that they are not well-equipped uh, or the best experts to deal with incidents of mental health. So can we have people in the field that are more trained to recognize uh, what's going on um, as a mental health condition to help diffuse the situation? Clearly, they're not going to take the place of police, but uh, I guess my what, what I'm wondering, and, and those that, that missed it, my, um, um, Matt talked about it uh, as well. Uh, we had a... Um, uh, a man in in Rochester, New York, uh, that was having a mental health uh, episode. He was uh, without any clothes on and and um, uh, and handcuffed, so um, as to not be a danger. But he was dealt with uh, rather than mental health. Um, um, he he had a. Uh, I think they call it an anti-spit bag or something. And anyway, he, he uh, ended up choking. And so uh, that's the context. My, my, I guess, more than two cents is that mental health is something that we ne really need to be taking uh, into account in our country. Um, in these specific episodes, and again, not to just pick on the police, because uh, police are often very overwhelmed by stressful situations. So do we have the right resources for their mental recovery? Uh, and then what are we doing about recognizing and dealing with the signs of, uh, of mental health? I think that, that this is an area, if we're going to ask uh, and say uh, to our Congress uh, to do more uh, and to our state uh, legislatures, this is an area where we could use help. You mentioned the, you know, very, very sad situation in Rochester. What about when you're dealing with, when police are dealing with mentally ill people? And let me just preface by saying, I recognize the difficulty of that because a mentally ill person can be extremely difficult and violent um, when they're having an episode. And so I don't mean to suggest that doesn't present very difficult questions for the police. And there can be confusion as to what's a drug episode and what's a, a mental illness episode. But let's make it easy and talk about a situation where it's clearly someone who's mentally ill. Um, and, and um, you know, does, how does that play into the police reaction, uh, whether the police are really the right people to be dealing with the situation you know, in the moment, if someone's not in imminent danger, I understand if someone is in imminent danger, it's a police issue. But if no one's in imminent danger, but someone is acting out and, and potentially violent or even armed, but not not necessarily threatening anyone at the moment, um, are there other ways to de-escalate the situation? Is there a combination of police and other types of services that might prevent some of these tragedies from happening? You know, look, I think that's a matter of, you know, the police, and this is so tough. They just, somehow we have to improve their training if we can. I mean, a mentally ill person, sad as it is, as you pointed out, can be incredibly violent. And, you know, we are, you know, we can't have a 911 caller, you know, call up and say, send a social worker, you know, send a psychiatrist. It, it, it is going to be the police. I mean, one answer is to kind of have rapid response social worker teams, you know, perhaps go to scenes with the police when the caller, because remember, a lot of times police are going to scenes, they don't know if they're dealing with a mentally ill person or not. I mean, sometimes they do, but, but you know, they don't know. And, and they don't necessarily know who's schizophrenic or who's under the, the, the influence of PCP or, or whatever. So, so the answer is, I think sometimes the answer is yes. And I'd like to see social workers integrated more into precinct work. But don't kid yourself. I mean, mentally ill people can be very violent. People calling aren't taking the time to do 
their own analysis. Although actually in the Daniel Prude case, the caller did say, you know, it's my brother and, 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 and he's mentally ill. But Daniel Prude is an extreme situation. And I think some of the cops involved there are gonna face significant legal problems uh, and should. Um, but, but so the answer to that is yes. You know, if we can train police better to recognize it, and, and, and you, you hit it right. I mean, that's why I like the imminent threat standard. Okay, you know somebody is mentally ill, you know they're you know, in an apartment with a knife, but if there's nobody left in the apartment, cordon off the apartment and try other things first. Um, and, and the police ought to be trained to, to call other resources there first. On the other hand, if there's somebody in the apartment, a child, a spouse, a partner, you know, you, you place the police in a difficult situation and what they have to address yep. is the behavior. I mean, again, the police, police behavior. Yeah. And I mean, you know, it's very hard to come up with, you know, absolute solutions because uh, you don't want the police not to be involved in any in all mental health situations because a mentally ill person can become very violent and you know if you only sent in a social worker psychologist psychiatrist um, they could be at risk Um, you know uh, on the other hand and police officers are not there to make an instantaneous diagnosis Uh, as we discussed with Matt some drug episodes look like mental health episodes and you can't be sure what's driving the behavior um, so these are really difficult issues, but I would say when there is clearly a mental health episode and where the person doesn't appear to be in, um, uh, uh, when there isn't a threat of imminent harm to another person, you know, obviously, and I assume that actually police officers in many jurisdictions are trained this way, backing off, giving the person space allowing it to play out for a little while before you um, you take extreme actions. And this isn't commenting on the Rochester situation specifically at all. Um, that has to be part of the training because you can precipitate yeah. an event with a mentally ill person that might have been avoided. So, um, and I go back and I mentioned this in the piece that you mentioned before that I wrote. Mm-hmm. What the Rochester mayor said that, that really struck a chord with me was that here was this person in need, crying out in need for help. And the city, we, they, it lacked the compassion in her view to meet that need. And, you know, that is an issue that cuts across these difficult and look, uh, police officers aren't going to be choir boys. They come into contact with uh, a lot of, difficult situations where there is a genuine threat of violence to them or other people and they put them they put their lives on the line so it's this is not by any means yeah. trying to paint with too broad a brush or say that uh, they don't have extremely difficult situations mm-hmm. i think the main point though is have we as a society not as police officers specifically as society have we lost the ability to show compassion yeah. in um, in so many ways with people we don't agree with, with people who aren't like us, and mm-hmm. certainly in people who get caught in the criminal justice system? Is there no role for compassion in that process? Um, you know, and 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 I think that's something we have to examine as a society. And when it comes to the yeah, mentally great. ill who are so vulnerable. Right. Uh, you have to balance the need to diffuse the, the potentially violent situation with the need to be compassionate. That's not an easy balance to get right. Uh, I, uh, look, I, <laughs> I'm going to use the hammer and nail uh, um, analogy in two ways. One, I think uh, you just you just nailed it. Um, but two, if we, ju- it's, if we just look at this through the police lens, right, um, well, when the only tool you have is a hammer, Everything looks like a nail, and your interjection of what uh, of the mayor's point was a good one, right? Because if we had a better and more responsive healthcare system, maybe it doesn't get to uh, an interaction between this gentleman and to the police, uh, and we have a person out there that can recognize signs of distress. I mean, he's suffocated being in this hood. Are there different kinds of hoods? Are there uh, different training? So it is a multifaceted, uh, multifaceted analysis. 
Um, in the Brianna Taylor um, um, situation, there was a no-not warrant and uh, obviously a very bad ending where, uh, as I mentioned, her family's uh, received uh, a $12 million settlement. Um, Rand Paul, um, who um, you, 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 I guess, may not traditionally think that this legislation is uh, um, uh, being driven from, has proposed re- le- uh, legislation in the area of no-knock warrants where they would uh, greatly uh, be either refined or all the way done away with. And I know that in certain uh, particularly drug instances or uh, instances where you think that there may be drugs or other valuables or uh, things that are portable uh, that you don't want, uh, uh, say, a suspected criminal to abscond with, uh, they've traditionally been looked at as, as powerful tools. But I think as we look in this situation, they may place um, a great danger. Um, and from a public policy perspective here, it feels to me like the danger outweighs the utility. And so where do we go with these no-knock warrants? Greatly restrict or do away with? And so the question is, you know, we need to train our police officers and even our judiciary to say, if you're going to give this extreme kind of warrant, which I think we should still give because you just can't ask ATF officers and DEA any FBI or police to walk into any situation having to announce themselves or to knock. But, 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 you know, to train them to say, well, wait a second, before you give this no-knock warrant, you know, we want more than probable cause. We want highly probable cause. I don't want to have information just from an anonymous informant who's in the past proven to be reliable, what we call the old Aguilar-Spinelli test, which were two Supreme Court cases. You know, I want to know as clearly as possible why there's a clear and present danger for you to announce yourself. Well, I wouldn't, I, I mean, I heard what Matt said about it. I wouldn't, uh, this is a bad analogy, but I wouldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Um, I think it's too much to say you can never have a no-knock warrant. What if you're about to approach a cell of terrorists <laughs> who are assembling weapons or have weapons at their side. Yeah. And yeah. if you knock, <laughs> they're going to shoot through the door, right? Or blow themselves up or blow all, everyone around say, them up. It. Right. <laughs> detonate something. Um, you know, the idea that there are no circumstances in which a no knock should be warranted strikes me as too extreme. Uh, I, I heard what Matt said about the circumstances that would justify it in the judge's mind. And, if those circumstances, and maybe we do need to add to the test, and maybe it is being added to in some places, which is, um, what's the risk that there's a third party involved? What do the police know about whether the place that they're not going to knock is going to include a potentially innocent bystander or someone uninvolved in the crime? That If that's not part of the test, it should be, right? Or it should be a factor anyway. Um What's the, what is it that might be destroyed? Are we talking about mm-hmm. throwing diamonds down out the window? Okay, that's, that's right. valuable property, but it's not a violent crime. If we're talking about throwing arms out the window or detonating something or mm-hmm. um, potentially using deadly force against the police that might be avoided if the knock wasn't made, those to me are circumstances that have to be taken into account. So the presumption should be, you better show me as a judge that this is really the right the right result and there's a really good reason to do it this way as opposed to another way. But I personally would not subscribe to it can never be appropriate. I absolutely follow the, the, the logic. And I guess if I were uh, a judge and people were bringing that to me to sign, <laughs> I would rarely, if ever, uh, sign them. Uh, I would, I think this is another good example of, of data. Um, and so what does the data tell us about the utility, uh, versus the downside of these things? Uh, your terrorist example, uh, is, is, is a good one. What I see across the panoply of these cases, and when I say these cases, the you know, so the Graham and the Connor and uh, Gardner that that we've that we've discussed here, they're too often, and and you you allowed for it in your reasoning, I think, when you talked about diamonds, um, and I think that they're too often about property crimes, and in my mind, we can't elevate 
property over over life. So I think I would, one, I would want to see the data for all of these no-knock warrants across a lot of different data points. I would lean towards doing away with, um, but because of this terrorist point or um, if I have uh, massive danger to lots of lives, including the police, uh, by not having a no-knock warrant, it's one of those, uh, those instances that I think we have to make it so narrowly tailored uh, that it would, it would be equivalent of, of, of almost never giving them, but I would want to see, I would want to see the data. California's tried to pass a statute that says, well, when it's necessary, you can use deadly force. That to me is just a minefield is going to invite everybody's prejudices, white, black, young, old. It's just a mess. Um, it seems to me what Colorado is trying to do is, is coming a little bit close to Garner, but they're saying when there's an imminent threat of serious physical injury that, you know, then the police officer has a right to act. That strikes me as better than objectively reasonable. Because again, I find that term murky. I mean, I think people understand if there's an imminent threat to you or an imminent threat to others, not a guy running into the woods or running away in the field or running down a deserted alley, because that gives the police time. Um, you know, and, and so that's, I, I kind of like the way the law is trending, but you know, then you get, and this doesn't relate to deadly force, you know, in New York, which is kind of overshot, you know, we, we passed the statute in reaction to the chokehold. Well, New York City literally doesn't allow a chokehold even in self-defense, which conflicts with New York State. And there's a doctrine called preemption and even our local DA is saying we're not going to be able to enforce that law. But then we also passed the law that looks like it's going to be amended that said, well, when somebody's on their diaphragm, you can't put any pressure on them because of the risk of death. And police officers are saying, well, well, hold on. If we can't use our weapons and we've got to get a guy handcuffed behind his back, you know, what are we supposed to, you know, what can we do? Um, and I think the legislature, the city council is going to amend that. But, you know, look, we're dealing with very difficult issues. Um, and in some respects, these issues are tough to define. They're, de they're dealing with concepts that are tough to define. Uh, we're going to overshoot in some instances, uh, and then maybe we refine them. Like, for instance, no, no, no-knock statute. I don't, I don't think it's wise to outlaw no-knock warrants. On the other hand, both police officers and judges need to be trained more sensibly to the dangers that they do present um, before they give somebody a no-knock warrant. Uh, so that, that, that's the best I can tell you. Is there a statute that can work? Yeah, I, I, I think imminent threat works better than objectively reasonable. Um, I think should every prosecutor who's worth his salt is going to argue, you know, a police officer could have fallen back. And and I think we're going to get into fact specific. Um, but, you know, a lot of it is just who we are, our life experiences and, and you know, two reasonable, smart people or well-meaning but not smart people are going to look at the same set of facts at times and, and disagree and and nobody's wrong. Maybe this is a good point to to, to end. Um, we've seen Colorado. We've seen, uh, well, first of all, California has already passed uh, a, a statute that um, talks about um, when uh, deadly force can be used. Now, the legislator there stopped and said specifically, uh, we're, we're, we're not defining uh, exactly what reasonableness is. And so that leaves us a little bit in between. In between. I think uh, Cal uh, Colorado, excuse me, uh, did a better job. They, they um, were more specific. And I think we take the next stride. What do you think about this line of legislative action where it meets the precedent that we have um, uh, in place right now? Well, I touched on it. Um, you know, I, I would add to the objective standard a requirement that there be an imminent threat uh, of the use of deadly force by the person who you're using the deadly force against. Um, and... Uh, you know, that needs to be judged uh, in the circumstances uh, that exist at the time. So if a police officer's 
uh, in a situation where a reasonable police officer would believe that actually there was an imminent use of deadly force uh, and the facts show that to be reasonable, that's one thing. But but I think you shouldn't leave it at would a reasonable police officer act in that way because what you may find is that police officers will say, well, a reasonable police officer doesn't wait until uh, they know whether there's an imminent use of deadly force. And I think to use deadly force, you ought to be required to show that there was an imminent danger of the use of deadly force before you use it. Because it comes again to uh, my concern about the test today is that it may be appropriate under the law to do it, but should the person should you do, do it, it? Given, yeah. given the consequences, should it be used under those circumstances? And I would add that layer. So I think that Colorado is moving in a direction. And, you know, we talked about it. That's what the police manual in um, Wisconsin said as well. Yeah. I mean, right. that's in the manual. So a lot of police officers tr- are trained that way. Mm-hmm. And that's not to minimize the difficulty they have in making that judgment call on the fly. I give yeah. a lot of deference to the to the to the difficulty they have to um, the difficult circumstances, but those go into the mix. That is yeah. part of the test. Yeah, and I, and I think John, that's where I would pick up is your um, the Wisconsin statute, and and remember that came about after uh, it was actually a, a white man that was shot by the police in two thousand and four, and so the the uh, city of uh, Kenosha, Wisconsin, uh, or the the legislature, I should say, legislature uh, came out uh, and they defined reasonable force. Um, but I think that the way I would build upon uh, your answer, because I, I, I guess the, the top line answer is I like the way that this is going in terms of um, more real time, more trying to account for uh, what's happening on the ground, inputting the, the, the use of statistics into some of these legislative actions. But just like we can't have uh, or shouldn't have court decisions or precedent that exists in a vacuum, it's not going to be a panacea if we just have the legislator putting these things out. So what are updated standards? And you're hinting at this. So I guess uh, in this point, we're agreeing. Um, what what do the best of policing say about the, the, the use of force? And are we training people? Are we constantly retraining? Because it should be the last uh, the last resort act to protect his or her life or, or partner or those around from an imminent, you've, you've said imminent a couple of times, from an imminent danger before you use deadly force. And uh, while I know that these are uh, uh, split second decisions and I myself have never put on a police uniform and had to deal under the stress of that, uh, and, and I appreciate that it's uh, enormous. I think we have to couple legislative activity with training and with mental health for these officers and uh, that with the existing precedent. And hopefully then um, it, it will be the outlier number of cases that find their way um, into courts and into our media, uh, like, like, uh, like we're unlike what we're seeing now. And I guess I go back to your, uh, I would couple your morality point with my respect for all human life, because as long as we, I, I think th- this is the way I would end, um, at least for me, uh, as long as we see a pattern and people can read some statistical significance in them that it seems that they're a pattern of one race and here black um, being shot by the police, that is going to undermine the rule of law and our confidence in the law. And frankly, make relations with police and the community more difficult, which is not what we want to do. So um, I think a meaty topic. better than that. I think you got it. Um, And, you know, look, most pol- I, I think most police officers want to get this right. Most police officers uh, take the training seriously. The community, I think, the ones that have engaged in community policing, where they mm-hmm. do engage the community in the policing, is 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 are obviously more progressive and and responsive, and have more buy in. And look, I I have been a big proponent um, in when I do think about public policy. 
of community policing. Um, and it, look, we, we went through this with the, with the George Floyd piece, with some of our discussions. Um, and I think in communities of color, it's, it's, it's until we can bring some normalization to these stats, or at least until it looks like less of a one color, uh, spate of, of, of shootings, there is apprehension by communities of color of buying into this uh, community policing. Uh, we could uh, ask, uh, so I mean, the stories are rife, right? Like you would say, oh, there's an associate, there's a partner, uh, me as, 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 our, as our CEO. Like you're riding down the street, you see a cop car. You have some change in your body chemistry because you're just, you're wondering what is this, what is this, uh, is there going to be an incident or an episode? And it's just, again, um, I, maybe we'll come back to this in, 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 in future topics because I don't want to be too, uh, soapbox-ish. Um, but that's, uh, you know, I think we've got to realize that for some in our economy, in our economy, in our economy, but in our country, uh, that that's a, that's a real thing. Well, and, and I'll come back to what I said. For those of us who don't experience that, we have to listen to that. We have to take that as the reality that is an unacceptable reality for our friends and colleagues and even people we don't know who yeah, are right. different from us. We can't say, well, I don't believe that. No. <laughs> if you're telling me, and you are, and so many of uh, uh, other Your black men are saying uh -huh. that, and black women are saying that, hmm. that I absolutely accept it as the truth, and it's not an acceptable truth. So we have to figure out, uh, as a society, how to make that not the reality for you. Yeah. And I think well said. Brian and I Thank you for listening to The Law in Black and White. We hope you enjoyed it. You can find us at legal-innovators.com for even more insights. You can also subscribe to our podcast for bi-monthly conversations and follow Legal Innovators on social media to see what we're up to. We look forward to talking to you next time and be safe.